afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's up and welcome in to another edition of Sons of Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Wojak with Luke Smith alongside. We have quite a few things to discuss today. Notre Dame avoided a season-shattering program loss to the Toledo Rockets Saturday, 32-29, to but needed some late-game heroics from Jack Cohn and Michael Mayer in the final minutes to make that happen. Notre Dame is 2-0, so not all hope is lost, but they dropped to number 12 in the AP poll and to number 10 in the coaches poll, and almost everything we thought we knew about this team seems entirely up in the air now. Luke and I were both in attendance for this one, so we're going to break down the game from the way we saw it in the crowd, and we'll talk a little bit about the failed Peacock experiment because that was supposed to be the main story going into this game, and not Notre Dame nearly suffering one of the worst losses in the Brian Kelly era, but here we are. Um, we'll also be joined by former Notre Dame wide receiver Robbie Toma on the back end to talk a little bit more about this team, but mostly his career at Notre Dame and the Hawaiian influence he helped establish on the football program with his former teammate and lifelong friend Manti Teo. Back to the Toledo game, though, Luke. There is so much we have to get to regarding the actual game, but it was still a damn good time being back in South Bend this weekend to watch the Irish. Let's take a minute and acknowledge that we just narrowly escaped Toledo by three points. (laughs) (laughs) That fact has not been lost on me, Luke. I can promise. We have not lost, but we haven't really won either. Um Personally, I said we would win the game by 42 points, so clearly I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know, I was the modest 24, and I yeah. still look like an idiot. All of that said, I had a terrific weekend. Um, it was great being back. Pretty nice weather, too, honestly, and like good to see people I hadn't seen in a while. But, um, yeah, I I had a really – I don't know what else to say other than the fact that we beat Toledo by three points, but uh, you only beat the eventual MAC champs at home by three once, I guess. That's true. Let's hope it's only one time. But you're right. It was fun being back on campus, especially Friday afternoon, walking around campus, ran some routes on campus, threw the football around. So that's always fun. And then Luke and I went to Roar's, had some nice, slightly overpriced food. And then we went to Brothers and had to wait like 35 minutes in between beer orders. So in a way, um, it felt like old times, at least to me. What do you think? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Feels a lot like 2018 in South Bend. (laughs) Seriously. Um, I guess, you know, we we can start with the positives. Normally, we are not necessarily the beacons of optimism, but in this case, let's try to be a little optimistic at the beginning. What did you like uh, in this Toledo game? I'll be honest. When Tyler Buckner checked in in the second quarter, I was shocked. Um, I was Same. Like, I was like, where? I just didn't see that coming at all. Um, now, we saw after the game. They said there was always a plan to play him. However, I think that was under the assumption that it was going to be a blowout, not like they needed him to play. Um, so that's different. But, of, of course, they put him in. It immediately opened up the run game, led to a 43-yard touchdown run. 
from Kyron Williams. And I mean, frankly, he was, he was great. Uh, he was on the field for 17 plays and that was 14 runs and three passes went three for three for 78 yards and a touchdown and had seven carries for 68 yards on the ground himself. So from those 17 plays, he was on the field. They had 198 total yards for 11.6 yards per play. That's not bad. Um, I still think that Jack Cohn is very much the quarterback of this team, but I I know that Buckner is going to be playing quite a bit moving forward. Um, And they needed his legs on Saturday, which is absolutely insane that I'm saying that about Toledo, but it was true. Uh, And we'll get into why that was more later. But I I, I will say, I think it it does shock me just the way that some people turn like, and it's, and nobody is saying like, Oh, cone sucks. Like it's all like, you know, just the line is terrible. But the fact that people are already flip-flopping like that, like we need to play this kid. He's got to be the starter. And like, they had him throw three passes. Like, it's just like, you guys last week, this guy was the toast of the town and now you're ready to run him out. So I, I don't get it. Like, but whatever, I get it. That's what fans do, right? They overreact. But I will say uh, Buckner's appearance on Saturday I thought was very good and, and definitely promising to see. Definitely. When the news broke that, that Jack Cohen was transferring to Notre Dame, we joked that it's a perfect fit because Cohen is basically Tommy Reese 2.0. After Saturday, that appears to be even more true than we previously thought. And Cohen, he didn't really seem to be bothered by the fact that true freshman Buckner was taking some of his reps. So I think in that sense, you could tell it was part of the plan. And... The team needed both of them, like you said, and Cone just wasn't phased by it, and he delivered when the team needed him most, a la Tommy Reese in 2012. And outside of his one big mistake on that pick six right before halftime, I thought Cone threw the ball pretty well all game. Um, he finished 21-33 for 239 yards and two touchdowns. He also delivered the best moment of the game at the end when he dislocated his finger throwing a pass to Mayer um, and got hit when he threw it. Then he ran over the sideline to get it popped back into place by Rob Hunt, the Notre Dame athletic trainer, um, and then jogged back on the field to throw the game-winning touchdown pass the very next play. Like, that level of poise and confidence and leadership is something you can't teach, and I'm not sure if Buckner has that just yet. I mean, we'll obviously wait to see. It's only his second career game. But if Notre Dame is going to play two quarterbacks going forward, you just simply need a guy like Cone for that to work, and I have full faith in him now, especially after that game and how it ended. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, it's, I don't know. I, I guess I just am having a harder time processing this game than most others. Uh, I keep flip-flopping back and forth between, wow, this team's really horrible, to they should have won that game by three scores. They just had three horrible turnovers, and Toledo got lucky on two plays. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. We're 2-0, and and it feels a lot like 2012 in South Bend with the two quarterbacks and an elite tight end and play to the level of competition, I guess. But um, that's what it is. Uh, If they win every game by three points, they're undefeated. So go figure. Uh, I guess, though, moving forward, I also – I usually go into the stadium, like, as close to kickoff as I can. I try to make the most of my time in the tailgate lots. But I wanted to go in earlier on Saturday just because it has been a while um, with a full stadium. And I thought it was cool. You know, it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and they showed um, a video from President Emeritus Monk Malloy reflecting on that day on campus from 20 years ago. I thought it was really well done and moving, so glad I was in there for that. I mean, I still remember – the Michigan State game in 2001, which is the first game played at Notre Dame Stadium post 9-11. The whole stadium had American flags, and that was a really special moment. And, and it made me think back on that as I was watching that video. But 
Um, I thought that was a, a cool tribute, and I'm, I'm glad they did that. Um, other than that, I don't have a lot of other good things to talk about. Like, they played levels in the third quarter. That was sick. Obviously, Iowa State got exposed, too, and uh, All-American Brock Purdy got benched, so that's great because I've been shitting on him for, like, seven months now. Um, but other than that, like, it just was, like, not that not that entertaining at all. Um, I mean, like, that whole – we were getting the ball back on that last drive after Daquan Finn scored. I thought to myself – this is Duke 2016. We're about to go three and out and lose to fucking Toledo. Uh, and then, then I also thought like thinking about the Kyron fumble, like, wow, this is Northwestern 2014. Um, but maybe, maybe that's the one sign that like, we do still know who this program is. Cause they actually won this game. Thankfully Toledo kind of handed it to them at the end by scoring. But um, I like, they don't usually win those games. That's two weeks in a row where that's happened, where I'm like, there's no chance like they're just going to lose this game. And then somehow they try to kill me a million times and they end up on top still. So go figure. Um, but yeah, that was just a weird, weird game. You're right. And I immediately thought about that Cam McDaniel fumble in the Northwestern game when Kyron fumbled that. And there were shades of other horrific losses in the past. But you're right. They did come out on top. And at least after the game, you did get some, uh, I guess, a little bit more gratification by Iowa State getting exposed because neither of us were very hot on them going into the season. And, hey, Matt Campbell, future coach of USC, (laughs) after Clay Helton got fired this afternoon. Be my guest. It's a bummer. I'm sad Helton got canned. I can't believe he's been there for seven years. Yeah, I saw some tweet. I think it was from, like, Adam Kramer or whatever. So you went through six years of watching this guy do the same thing and you were fine with it, and then after two weeks, you're like, actually, you're fired. It's like, this is exactly <laughs> what he was doing the entire time. And I, I look, I get it. He needed to get fired at some point, probably way earlier than now. But now if you're USC, you fire your coach, you're probably, there's no way you're going to make a big-time hire during the middle of the season. No, right? and so, like, pardon my ignorance, but I've never heard of this interim coach. It's like Dante Williams or something. I guess he was their secondary yeah. coach. I've never heard of it. I guess he was at Oregon for a little bit before this, but like <laughs> the quote from uh, Mike Bone was like, I am like extremely confident that our team under Dante will experience considerable more success than they would under Clay or like something like that. And I was like, Jesus. Took two weeks to figure that out? Yeah. Like if it was that substantial, you probably would have recognized that earlier. And how does USC recruit like the rest of the season with a staff was no idea if they're going to be if they're going to be there. yeah and i mean it's one thing if clay helton was actually the coach and in the back of their mind they're not certain that they're going to be there um but if helton is still there at least they could you know pretend and, or pitch that to recruits i mean now what do they do because even the interim guys might not be there especially if they try to make a big splash bring in matt campbell or maybe luke fickle or someone and then because presumably with the new coach, like they're going to clean a house, right? Right. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But I mean, they've had one of the worst run athletic departments in the country the last decade. So none of this should be that surprising. No, it's really not. And I guess in the in the long run, it's probably good for Notre Dame. Um, but back to the Toledo game, I guess one you know positive is uh, Michael Mayer continues to live up to the hype. Um, coming into the season, we knew Mayer had the chance to be really special. Just the quote before the season from Tommy Reese where he said that Michael Mayer had the chance to be the best tight end at Notre Dame that Reese had ever seen. I and mean, that's some very elite company he's referring to. And so far, 
Mayer has been the best player on the team through two weeks. And that includes a guy in Kyle Hamilton who's probably going to be a top-five pick after this season. And last week I mentioned I was pretty disappointed in his two drops in key moments against Florida State, but he definitely made up for those in this one. He set the tone in the first play of the game. I don't know if you saw this, but he laid a huge block downfield on the pass to Avery Davis, just lit up a Toledo defender, put him on his back. And then, like, right after that, Mayer has a 28-yard catch and then a touchdown catch to cap off the drive. And then the rest of the game, Toledo doubled him and kind of held him in check up until the last drive, which made no sense. Like, I know Deontay Johnson is one of Toledo's better defenders, and he had a really great game. But lining him up one-on-one with Mayer in the slot, like that close to the end zone, was like malpractice by Vince Karras. And so Mayer goes on to finish with seven receptions, 81 yards, and two touchdowns. And to be honest with you, at this point, if there's one single thing you can count on with the offense, it's that Mayer's probably going to win the Mackey Award if he stays healthy. He certainly got a good chance. Um, I mean, yeah, he, he was really good. I wish that you mentioned it. He was doubled most of that game. I'm interested to see kind of what they do with him moving forward to just be creative and get him involved because he can't just not be there for two and a half quarters either. Um, and yeah. he does open up a lot of other match like matchups. And that Cone actually did miss reads as a result of, uh, you know, Mayer being doubled. But we'll see. Um, like you said, he's definitely at a, on a pretty torrid pace right now. But um, I'd like to see more ways they can get him involved because, uh, like you said, he's their best player. Yeah, and I guess one last positive note before we get to the negative. I'm not going to lie. I did not have much confidence that the defense was going to stop Toledo from getting a field goal when they got the ball back with, I think it was 109 left and no timeouts, um, which probably says a lot about where our defense is at. But at least in this game and in this moment, Myron Tagovailoa Amosa was able to seal the deal Uh, by forcing a fumble on Toledo quarterback Carter Bradley that was recovered by J.D. Bertrand, who also had an incredible game. We'll get to him a little bit later. Um, That sealed the win for Notre Dame, and then after the game, it was announced that MTA would not be available for a post-game interview because he had to hop on a Zoom to virtually attend his father's funeral. I can't even imagine what that entire day had to be like for him, Uh, but I am happy that he was the one who delivered the final punch and uh, wish him the best for him and his family. Agreed. All right, now on to the negative, um, and there's a lot here. <laughs> Certainly a lot. How about you start? So the offensive line is astonishingly bad. Like I know they've lost four NFL caliber guys from last year, but uh, this drop-off is just incredible to me. Uh, obviously the Fisher and now Carmody injuries contribute to this, but I'm just stunned. Um, Kane Madden seems allergic to touching anyone, to be honest with you. like He just doesn't even make contact. And uh, let me read some stats for you because they're not pretty. And numbers, you know, don't always tell the whole story, but here I think they certainly absolutely do. Um, Currently, Notre Dame ranks 125th nationally in sacks allowed per game at five. That's dead last among Power 5 teams. Similarly, they are 122nd in tackles for loss allowed per game at 10. That's tied with Kansas and Middle Tennessee State. I think Pete Sampson summed up the issues best in his piece today when he touched on rush efficiency in the Kelly era. For those not familiar, rush efficiency is the concept of measuring how well a run game keeps an offense ahead of the chain. So for a rushing attempt to be considered efficient, you have to gain 40% of the necessary yardage on first down, 60% of the necessary yardage on second down, and 100% obviously on third and fourth down. Through two games, 
Kyron, the guy we dubbed franchise, preseason All-American, is 38.2% efficient on rushing attempts. That is dead last by any number one or number two running back in the Kelly era. Like like I said, this guy was a preseason All-American. What this line is doing to him is just, it's abuse. It's unacceptably bad. Like, the, you have him and Chris Tyree back there, and you can't fucking block for those guys. It's just, it's pathetic. Um, they got worked by Toledo. Like, I, I don't know what, what else I really need to say. One of the six Toledo sacks came from John Jones, who's a guy who couldn't get on the field at Notre Dame except when he tried to recover a blocked punt that one time at Michigan. So, like, I know that some people will probably say, well, you know, some of those snaps are on Cone not getting the ball out quick enough or he, he just can't move. That's fine, but, like, the rushing stats really to me are just what's so alarming. Like, they just can't do anything. If you take Kyron's 43-yard run out the other day, it looks even worse. Um not that PFF is everything, but according to them, uh, Corell and Madden ranked 10th and 11th out of Notre Dame's offensive starters. Uh, and then Log is 7 and Carmody is 8. Patterson is the only one who has a – he's number 2. But, like, everybody else is just awful, awful. I, and I, I don't see it getting better is the issue for me. Um, they've done nothing to show me that they can improve. We said it was going to be a, a – you know, a put up or shut up year for Jeff Quinn. And it's kind of looking like he's going to shut up because uh, like, this is his first year without any, he stand guys. They're getting abused just time and time again. Like it's going to get ugly in the coming weeks. It really is. I, I, not like maybe, you know, I'm saying something completely different or just hopefully the pass game and, and using Buckner and running situations gets us, you know, we're still able to move the ball, but like, this is the worst offensive line we've had since 2007, since Jimmy Clausen's freshman year. I truly believe that. And um, I'm just not very confident they're going to improve. So that was a rant. I'm doing a lot of that today, but um, they're really bad. Yeah, and your point on the development, like it's hard to imagine that there is going to be a ton of development because it's hard to really think of this as a talent issue because Blake Fisher obviously losing him hurts. You know, he's a top 55 star, but he's a true freshman. Behind him is Michael Carmody, who is also a top recruit. And now behind him, the third string left tackle, Tosh Baker, was a top 100 recruit a couple years ago. These are all four-star prospects, big dudes, a ton of talent. Notre Dame has recruited really well at this position. I get it. One injury, you take a step back, but this is gross. And there just isn't a ton of confidence, it seems, in Jeff Quinn and that him getting this offensive line to improve as the season goes along. And Jarrett Patterson in the middle can only do so much. Kane Madden is, like you said, his acclimation to the Notre Dame program has been way slower than expected. And maybe it's because Notre Dame runs a different offense, more pass heavy, um, a little bit more complex. But it's not like the competition that Notre Dame has played is even that substantially better than what he saw at Marshall. I mean, Florida State probably better, but they've been horrible in recent years. And then it's Toledo. Like, I know he's playing at Marshall, but like, it's it has it's not like we're playing Wisconsin or anyone yet, and then we do have to play those teams too. So how is it going to get that much better between now and then? It was so tough to watch, and you also bring up a good point with Cone. Cone has not been able to identify the blitzes um, as well as you would have liked. I guess my expectation there would be similar to Tommy Reese in 2013. That year, despite the fact that Reese probably runs like a six-second 40, pretty much a statue back in the pocket there, and he was only sacked six times. Yes, part of that is due to a better offensive line, but that's also a quarterback that's able to put the offensive line in the best position to succeed and get rid of the ball before it happens. On the sack fumble, 
It looks like Cohn called out the wrong blitz because a guy came pretty much untouched. Yes, a lot of this is on the offensive line. Some of that is on him too. Now going forward with Buckner, it does make sense to play a guy who's um, able to avoid pressure more than Cohn. But then again, you know, there's problems with that too because then Buckner might not put those guys in as good of a position to succeed. I don't know. I'm with you though. The offensive line is really concerning and I don't really see it getting that much better. If this trend continues, all that chatter about Jeff Quinn might actually come to fruition because I don't see how any coach can survive a drop off like this. It's pretty bad. Now I will correct one thing you said there. Um, did I think you just said that Florida state is better than Toledo or something like that, or they're better talent than Marshall. Did you see what happened to Florida state this past week? Good point. We should mention <laughs> that Florida state after Putting Notre Dame on the ropes and sending it to overtime, lost to Jacksonville State. And it was probably the worst Hail Mary play I've ever seen in my life. Um, Like, the guy catches the ball at, like, the 25-yard line, and the defensive backs just give up on the play and just basically let him run into the end zone. I mean, it's (laughs) – I watched, like, a Florida State radio broadcast of it, and you could just hear the guy slam his headset down, and he's like, (laughs) I just said – Plan everything in front of you, and it's 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 great. So yeah, so maybe K Madden is actually playing inferior competition. Yeah, I, what do I know? But yeah, uh, he needs to figure it out. But anyways, uh, moving on to more bad shit. Um, <laughs> Notre Dame is allowing thirty three point five points per game. Uh, we only allowed over thirty three points in a game twice in the Clark Lee era. We've now allowed. Uh, four 60-yard plays after giving up three in Lee's three years. Pete Sampson pointed this out in his article today. The entire ACC has allowed one 60-yard play this season, and the entire Big 12 has allowed three. Uh, what we're doing is just not sustainable. Now, there is some good there. Like, And I actually thought, besides those two deep plays, the this defense actually played all right. Uh, Toledo, what, scored two touchdowns? I honestly didn't think that they were that horrible, and I think right now we're in the top 10 in tackles for loss and sacks per game nationally, but just like the, the fundamental stuff has to be cleaned up. You can't have your best player, Kyle Hamilton, whiff on a tackle that leads to a 63-yard run. Like It's just it's alarming to me, the big plays, because it really is a lot of the same guys from last year. I know they lost JOK. They don't have Dalen Hayes or, or Ade and McLeod, but like, it's a lot of the same linebackers and guys in the front seven. And then of course, Kyle Hamilton. So just how they're playing is not up to par right now. And I don't know why that is. Some of this feels like it may be able to get sorted out. Um, you know, something else like people haven't really talked about this, like Marcus Freeman's first year at Cincinnati, that defense was not very good. Um, and obviously his last two years there, they were excellent. And so I just wonder He's working with much more talented players now, but I wonder if there's a bit of a learning curve there. Uh, just like new players adjusting to a scheme, him adjusting to players. Because, like I said, his first year at Cincinnati wasn't that great either. So I just, I don't know. Uh, some of this does feel like fundamentals that just needs to be cleaned up, but it's it's a little bit concerning because I've made the comparison that this is like 2012 or 2018, but the differences in 2012 and 2018, our defenses were lights out like the entire year. And... This is like a both sides of the ball issue. Uh, there's just a lot of problems like across both sides of the ball. You don't have the one unit that you can just rely on. So that's where I think the parallels maybe don't exist is that there isn't that lights out defense, um, at least not right now. 
Right, especially in 2012, it felt like while the offense clearly had to figure it out with a retro freshman quarterback and Everett Golson and then Reese coming in sometimes to help him out, you could always count on the defense uh, to limit the production of the offense despite the fact that they had a true freshman cornerback in Kavari Russell and then uh, Matthias Farley coming in in reserve for uh, Chamor Slaughter, who was uh, one of their senior safeties, and then he was sidelined for the whole season. But the front seven was so good that it was able to sort of mask the, I guess, inexperience and lack of skill in the back end. But there's just really not that on this team. I think the front four, well, sometimes front three, which is another topic we can get into, but um, you can really count on the defensive line, I would think. It's when you start to get to the linebackers in the back. um, That's where there's been just a lot of problems. And we said going into the season, defensive back was going to be a concern because you have Kyle Hamilton, who actually looked like a human in this game. And then... Everyone else, really. And there were some blown coverages. I, I, the one big play earlier in the game, backup safety, K.J. Wallace, uh, went to check the wheel route and just got completely burnt, took a bad angle to him. That was a huge play. And then after that Tyree touchdown, we, and Notre Dame goes up eight, where you're thinking, all right, finally, there's like 11 minutes left. Notre Dame could just put this one away. Then they just give up that 63-yard run right down the middle. It's just like there's just no confidence in the defense that they're going to deliver um, at any moment when they really need to be counted. I know they did at the end of the game in the, on the very last drive, but it's just not sustainable. Like Notre Dame is going to come up with a stretch here where they've got four ranked teams or five ranked teams in a row. Going into it, we were like, oh, okay, great. Like I think they should be able to win every one. If they keep playing like this and giving up this many big plays, it's going to come back to bite them. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how that shakes out. I mean, this week could be interesting um, with George Karloftis on the other side of the ball. Um, a defensive line for Purdue is a stud. And, I mean, they got some decent receivers, David Bell. So, we'll see. Um, we'll talk about that later this week. But I guess the only other thing I'll mention that I hated from Saturday was the in-game entertainment. Um Thankfully, they didn't show that godforsaken Mark Edwards commercial on the Jumbotron where he says elite a million times. But the girls in the crowd just interviewing students and having them do like lip syncing competitions was just awful. It was horrible. I was sitting next to my mom like, what is this? Like just because last week at Tallahassee, they did that there and I was talking to the people I was with at the game like thank god Notre Dame doesn't do stuff like this it's so cheesy they do such a good job of in-game entertainment and then they just completely made me eat my words this week because I thought it was awful uh like I know you want to get students involved and I actually thought the student section at the game was pretty good but that stuff was just get rid of it like exit out (laughs) now I might I am not signing off on that yeah, that was awkward. And, and keeping it on the crowd, that was one thing that stuck out to me. I was pretty disappointed by the Notre Dame crowd for this one. Um, I know we're still dealing with the pandemic, and there are people out there who still aren't comfortable being in large crowds. And that's totally understandable, especially considering Notre Dame didn't require proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to get in. But I guess just given the fact that this was the first home game in nearly two years, I, I expected the atmosphere to be way better than it was. And you could actually kind of tell in the stadium lot before the game, there just weren't as many cars. I think one parking lot was sort of blocked off. That was normally like a pretty popular spot. And I guess maybe it's a good time to remind myself that people out there actually have lives and aren't willing to travel from Los Angeles to South Bend in the middle of a pandemic to watch Notre Dame play a Mac team. All fair points. Um, but the actual attendance was 62,009. Uh, that's like 16,000 less than a sellout. And again, pandemic, 
Now I'm just playing Toledo. But this is definitely going to be something to follow for the rest of the season, and it could be concerning going forward. You and I have talked about this a little bit. Is it a new generation who just isn't as interested in, in going to games or what? But I was just not impressed with it at all, and I thought they were super quiet up until, like, the very end. Yeah, I don't know. I I actually didn't think the crowd was that quiet. I thought it was fine. Um, it was definitely, there's no doubt, like, low. I, I think it's a number of things. Um, like I said, I've kind of had that theory that just people now don't like going to games and are lazy and would sit on their couch because um, they're lazy. But I also think it's a price thing. Um, I mean, Notre Dame, the lower bowl tickets were like 90 bucks. Who wants to pay 90 bucks to see them play Toledo? It, I guess I did, but I, t- I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, were you not like yeah. in that exact spot? Yeah. But um, like, it's just, I think Notre Dame, and I know you want to get to this too. They're doing some things that are kind of just like turning people away. Like they do this and then they have a, some fucking stream on Peacock. And so they're just like trying to limit viewership as well. Like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I don't know, but um you're right. I don't know. I thought that that tailgate lot, I've actually said the last couple of years, I think that it's kind of been like that for whatever reason. Um, going back to 2019 through 17, I thought that lot has always been kind of empty. But yeah, th- there were definitely less people, it seemed like, in South Bend. Um, but maybe we'll see. I- I'm interested to see what Purdue looks like this weekend, and then I'll make a better call on it because I don't think I really, I don't know. I, I heard some people saying that like, you could hear "Let's Go Rockets" chants. I didn't hear any of that. Yeah, I, I didn't hear that. So I, I don't know. But I saw Brian Kelly's quote. He said, "You know, as as long as we don't have another Georgia, basically." Which I always say the Georgia thing was overblown too. Just red was a lot. It was the it was a it's a dominant color, but that was still <laughs> predominantly Notre Dame fans in that game. I, I will say that till the day I die. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. That'll be an interesting thing to follow as as the season goes on here, especially especially once we see how we do in these next couple games. Yeah, and I guess now would be a good time to bring up the Peacock thing. And considering we're both at the game, we didn't get the chance to watch the broadcast live. Um, I did use Peacock to rewatch the game, and it was just not very good. For whatever reason, they made it really difficult to rewind and fast forward. So when I was trying to skip through stuff, that was really hard. You can really only do it in like... 10 second increments or it goes way too far back or forward vice versa um but based on everything i've read and heard i'm sure you've heard the same it sounded like the experiment as a whole was a disaster and we mentioned before that if you're going to make fans pay for something they've always had for free you have to give them something extra to make it worthwhile and really the only extra part at least from my understanding was the pre-game show and post-game show were a little bit longer and the actual stream was actually far worse uh, because it kept lagging behind. And that's unacceptable, not really surprising. I get why Notre Dame wanted to try this out, so I'm not entirely faulting them for that. But now they have to be willing to recognize that it didn't work and there needs to be a lot of technical advancements in the streaming department before this is even considered to happen again. Um, and it really is just bothersome to me because making Notre Dame football exclusive is just not a good business strategy. I know from my own experience that the reason I'm a Notre Dame fan is because way back when they were the team that was always on TV. Neither of my parents went to Notre Dame, nor did anyone else in my family. The reason I'm a fan is because my grandpa was always able to watch them on TV, rooted for them, passed that down to my dad, my uncle, and eventually it passed down to me. 
And I know I'm certainly not alone in that regard. And there's plenty of people that are in the exact same situation. And like I said, I understand Notre Dame wanted to try it out, but they should seriously wait several years before they even try to re- revisit this again. Yeah, um, from what I heard, it sounded like the quality live at least wasn't that bad, um, but the, the lag was just ridiculous, um, which is just completely unacceptable. I, I I don't know how they didn't plan that better. Like it's okay yeah. if you can have a couple second lag, but just be on top of things. You're NBC yeah. for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> but I I don't know. I mean, I hate streaming stuff. Like that's why I was at yeah. the game. Like so I that's I wasn't gonna do it. I did see some people complaining about beat writers tweeting out scores. It's like. That's their job. Like, I, I don't know, like, yeah, how you can be ridiculous. upset about that. And that's sort of one thing to me that makes no sense is, like, if streaming is supposed to be this new wave, new generation thing, you're basically forgetting that now a lot of people, uh, when they consume these games, it's a two-screen experience. They're watching the game on TV, and then after plays, they're going to Twitter or Instagram, you know, for the instant reaction. And if that's the new wave, and then you try to do the streaming where you're, like, two plays behind – you're basically eliminating that experience. And, and it's if you're trying to be, like, with it and a part of, like, this technological advancement, but you're just making it way worse. Like, it, as a whole, it just doesn't make any sense to me now. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. Um, I I did hear, I, I don't know. I, I actually haven't even tried to rewatch it on that thing, and I don't think I will. Um, so good riddance, Peacock. Hope you, hopefully you <laughs> learn your lesson and then this doesn't come back again. I, I am, I, I actually am interested to see like what the metrics were. I also don't really know what metrics they were using. Like if it was subscriptions or what, or, but yeah. Like, how do you, how do you check that? I haven't seen anything yet, so we'll see. Yeah. I guess one final note. Um, another thing I didn't like is uh, like, I'm certainly not going to blame Kyron Williams for his lack of stats in this one, especially given how poorly the offensive line played. But his fumble with 3.30 left in the fourth quarter nearly cost center in the game and, and the season, really. Um, fumbles were a problem for Kyron last year. He had five on the year, three of which were recovered by the defense, including a 93-yard touchdown return against Georgia Tech. And this is the second week in a row. One of the team's best players made a huge mishap during a crucial moment late in the game that almost cost him. And given the weaknesses of this team that we've already discussed at length, they're probably going to be in a lot more of these close type of games moving forward. Their best players cannot continue to make these types of mistakes in these moments, or else it's going to cost them a W or maybe more like we saw in 2016. Like, this just can't happen. I agree. And uh, honestly, with every moment I watch this team, it reminds me way too much of of 2016 um the difference is that we've actually won the first two games somehow so i don't know um we'll see i'm sure i'll talk myself into a more optimistic place as the week goes on but yeah a lot to clean up all right you want to introduce our new segment before we wrap it up here yeah um so our new segment is called who's drinking free um hopefully we can get somebody to sponsor this although i fear that we uh may have just you know ruined any opportunity to get sponsored by the comments I've made about various South Bend bars on this <laughs> podcast. But I'll lead us off here. Uh, the idea is that, you know, after a Notre Dame win, uh, players of age go out downtown and they're drinking for free because they had a great game. Uh, mine, with that said, is a little bit different. I'm going with Daquan Finn. You may ask who the hell that is. Uh, he, I don't even know if he's 21 years old, but he is Toledo's backup quarterback who scored on that 26-yard touchdown run 
on third and one. Um, like I said, I don't know if he's 21, but I will drive to Toledo with a case to thank him for not having the presence of mind to slide on that third down. Because if he does, um, well, we only had one timeout left. There was about a minute and 40 left, so they easily could have run the clock out and kicked a field goal. And if he does slide, the game is over. I don't know we're even recording this podcast right now, and I'm probably changing my entire fall. So another week that was a, another three-month swing for me. Like, I, I that and Tallahassee, like, you start thinking, like, do I cancel these trips? Do I try to – do I have insurance on these flights to Blacksburg and, and UVA? I don't even know, but I don't have to worry about that now. So thanks, Daquan Finn. Uh, let me know what you want. I was telling the people who I was watching with right before that, I was like, man, I just hope Toledo scores. This sucks because they were just slowly moving up and down the field and you're seeing the time tick off the clock. And Toledo's special teams unit is apparently one of the best in the country. Their punter was unbelievable. Their kicker was nails. So you're just thinking, okay, they're going to just bleed this one out, kick a game-winning field goal, and we're going to lose to Toledo. Um, But then Finn just runs untouched into the end zone. He goes down at the one. They're almost certainly knocking that kick in to end the game. But you're right. He decided to score. Thank you to Quant Finn. Notre Dame basically won because of that. Um, But for me, I'm saying J.D. Bertrand. I checked before we started recording. J.D., is 21, so he can legally drink after this one. He actually was at O'Rourke's after the game uh, to record the Inside the Garage podcast. Side note, imagine how bad that would have been if Notre Dame had lost. I think Kyle was too focused on that. That's why he missed that tackle. He's probably <laughs> thinking, is this game going to go into overtime? We're going to miss our show. <laughs> I don't know about all that, but I want to say J.D. did play lights out. He led the team in tackles with 11, 10 of which were solo. He had three tackles for a loss and a sack, and he recovered the fumble to end the game. Going into the season, all the reports out of camp were that J.D. was basically forcing himself on the field with how well he was playing, and that's just an incredible performance all around. He played pretty well last week, had a couple mistakes, but um, this one was just incredible. Coach Kelly gave him the game ball after the game, and deservedly so. This defense has a ton of question marks, like we said, and they're going to need more guys like J.D. to step up. J.D. looks like he's going to be a guy we could count on the rest of the season, so... Really happy with the way he played and pretty excited about his potential going forward. So I guess we can sort of close it out there um, on a positive note. You want to add anything before we get to Tomo? No, I don't think so. Weird game. Uh, thank God you only played Toledo once. We're joined now by former Notre Dame wide receiver Robbie Toma. Robbie, thank you for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it. Um, before we get to your time as a player, I want to hear from Robbie Toma, the fan, first uh, because This has been a pretty crazy start to the season for Notre Dame. And as much as Luke and I try to make sense of it all, it's always great to hear from someone who has actually gone through it and put on the Notre Dame uniform before. So how are you feeling about this Notre Dame team following that nail-biting win against Toledo? Um, First of all, thanks for having me, guys. Um, No, I mean, it's – that's the beauty of, you know, being a fan is, you know, watching games and watching teams struggle and and overcoming it. And to be honest with you, I mean – I was joking with some buddies. I said, Toledo looks like they're going to join the SEC next year when they, when they were playing uh, us. And, you know, I just, I kind of, you know, remember, um, you know, anytime a, a team came to Notre Dame, it seemed like they always played their absolute best. And, uh, you know, next week Toledo, might, I, I'm not sure who they're going to play, but they might get blown out by like Buffalo or something. But, um, you know, they, you know, obviously came in and, and give Toledo some credit, but, um, you got to give Notre Dame some credit and, and you know, overcoming a, a pretty, I would say, sloppy game. But, um, you know, I, I think they'll clean it up and they'll be all right. 
Yeah, uh, you say that. I guess what are some ways you think that Notre Dame can improve going forward to, to get things back on track and really back to the level that, that they've been playing at the last four or five years? Yeah, it, it, there's a standard that is set, right? So, And I think we've become accustomed to it now. You know, I think what Coach Kelly has, is it four 10-win seasons in a row? Um, you know, obviously – we've been to a, you know, a couple of playoff games and whatnot, but there's a certain standard that I'm sure the kids practice at as well. And, you know, some, you know, some days you just don't have it. And it, it seemed like, um, you know, they were, they were ready on, on the opening drive and then, um, you know, two weeks in a row and then it kind of, kind of went down. So I think it's just kind of the in-between, you know, they, they start fast and it seems like they're finishing strong, but, Everything in between, I think they got to kind of um, clean up and focus a little bit more in the middle of the game and not just when they need to. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I think part of the reason the start has been so surprising is due to Notre Dame's consistent success over the past four years. Um, it certainly wasn't always that way, though, um, especially not when you joined the roster back in 2009. We know you came in at the same time as your lifelong friend, Manti Teo, so I know that played a significant role in the process, but... Something that doesn't always get brought up is that you were actually committed to UCLA when Manti made the decision to go to Notre Dame. And I actually live like less than a mile away from UCLA now in Los Angeles. I've been around that campus. It could not be more different than South Bend. Uh, <laughs> so really, what transpired in those last few days before signing day that ultimately led you to decommit from UCLA and sign with Notre Dame? I mean, shoot, that was what? Oh man, that was, seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> but um, no, you know, I was committed to UCLA. A buddy of mine, Dalton, who also uh, he ended up going to UCLA. Um, you know, I, I was fully planning on going to, to the University of was it California? I can't even yeah. remember what it is. University of California, um, Los Angeles. California, Los Angeles, right? And. Um, uh, a couple of days before signing day, Manta had reached out to his top five or whatnot and thanked them and you know told him that he wasn't signing with them. And UCLA was all up in arms. Um, they kind of took it out on me. And, um, you know, col- I, this is when I realized, you know, college is a tough business because even if I was a package deal, right? Like when uh, UCLA offered me, that was apparent that I was the package deal. So, I had to basically, I, I basically didn't have any offers, you know? And um, Weiss had offered me earlier that year when I was at the Under Armour game. And uh, I talked to him after the signing day and I told him, I said, hey, you already have Manti. Do you guys want me or do you guys just want, you know, a package? And, you know, Weiss brought up how he was Wes Welker's coach and everything and, I was like, all right, well, let's do it. <laughs> Signed and, you know, the rest is history. No, that's that's funny. And so every freshman, whether they play football or not, has to deal with a lot when they leave home for the first time and go off to college. I imagine those struggles are heightened tenfold given the distance and change in culture from Hawaii to Indiana. So what were those first few months in South Bend like for you? So I was actually originally born in Ohio. So I, I was pretty familiar with the okay. Midwest. Um, we, we would always go in, uh, Christmas time. And so, you know, I, I enjoyed the snow, but, um, you know, the special thing about Hawaii is the people and, and 
you know, they call it the Aloha spirit and, you know, everybody's so real friendly. And I saw the exact same thing when I, when we moved to South Bend, um, you know, there's people come from all over the country. So you're kind of forced to become a family. It's kind of like a melting pot, you know? So I, you know, Manta and I had no problem adjusting to, to South Bend. Obviously it was tough being halfway around the world from our family, but um, you know, just, just, South Bend was such a special place and, uh, you know, for, for young, young adults growing into manhood, that was, um, an, you know, just an awesome experience being out there. So expectations for Notre Dame going into your freshman season were pretty high, despite, you know, how poor the team's record was in the years prior. There's a ton of talent on that roster. Things started off going pretty well. You guys go four and one to start the season and then the wheels sort of come off and you finish six and six, which led to the firing of head coach Charlie Weiss. And then you have to go through that. Was there any doubt in your mind that Notre Dame was still the right place for you to be after your freshman year? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's tough when you are expecting to be with a coach for, you know, X amount of time. Right. And whether the coach leaves to go get a better job or whether he gets fired like Coach Weiss did, you basically got to start from zero, you know. Um, I, I earned some playing time my freshman year. And then when Kelly came in, um, not gonna lie, I struggled. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, on my A game. So it took, it took a while for the, their staff to kind of believe in me. And, you know, it, it was not gonna lie as a young man, it's, uh, you know, it's tough. You, you go every day battling and, you know, that's why I feel for, you know, a lot of these kids, not just at Notre Dame, but when they have a rough game or, or, you know, even practice, there's nobody on earth more upset than the kids themselves, you know? So um, I think that's why I'm a little fiery on Twitter when it comes to some of the Notre Dame fans kind of, kind of barking about the kids, but, you know, cause I remember, um, you know, when, when, when the game's done, those fans aren't getting yelled at in film room. It's, it's us. So, um, you know, that's just, uh, I, I never really thought I was going to leave Notre Dame, but yeah, it, there are some, some difficult times. Yeah, you sort of mentioned it there, and I think you also hit on this as well. It seems like when things go wrong, fans always want the head coach fired and that that's going to solve all the problems a team or a program might have. Obviously, it doesn't always work like that. But I'm curious, just as a player on the roster, um, moves where an entire new staff comes in, I'm sure that 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 just kind of results in more of a really big change to your daily life. And and just what is that experience like when you have a brand new staff come on board and and it's really just different from anything you were doing prior to that? Well, it was tough. I mean, I, uh, I, for example, we did summer workouts with coach Weiss and we went through a season. So we were expecting, you know, the off season similar to, our summer training, which wasn't too bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, coach Mendoza, who was our weight coach at that time, was um, was tough on us. But when Kelly and Coach Longo came in, I, I never threw up from working out in my life. And the first day when Kelly and, and Longo put us through the ringer, I, I puked. And, you know, some of, some of the guys like Theo and Sierra and um, you know, who else? Shaq Evans that was there they've never seen me throw up. So they know it was, they know it was a tough run. And so, um, the, I mean, yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, Kelly has to come in and um, I wouldn't say impose his will, but he's got to change it, the culture and, and the uh, day-to-day life, like you mentioned, into what he wants and the standard that he wants. And um, yeah, it was a tough transition, but um, shoot, it, it, 
ended up paying dividends a few years later. Right. Like you said, you were able to get on the field a little bit your freshman year and a little bit your sophomore year as well. Um, but you really started to make an impact your junior year in 2011. Um, you caught your first touchdown pass in your career against Air Force that year. And you ultimately went on to win the next man in award, which is given out to the top reserve on the team. I know there was a ton of work that went into that. So how gratifying was that for you, given everything that you had to go through to, to get to that point? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was it, it was special to get recognized um, by the staff and, um, you know, just for all the hard work that I that I definitely put in. But, um, you know, without Theo, there's no there was no Robbie Tomo because you know, Theo and I were very close friends and Theo actually went into Alfred's office and, and told him that, you know, Rob deserves to play. And so Theo and I went, Theo would go two series and I would go one. And then, you know, that opened the door for when there were some injuries, they moved Theo full time and then they moved me to slot full time. So, um, you know, I definitely like Theo and I pushed each other for, you know, all four years we were there, but that was a special thing Theo did for, for me and I'm forever grateful for that for sure. Yeah, no, that's a really cool story. I'd never heard that before. Talking about the your last year, the 2012 season, I think we could probably do an entire podcast on that year because so much happened. Yeah. But let's start <laughs> leading up to that season. Nobody in the college football world was predicting you guys to have such a great year. I think you were unranked to start the year. But was there a moment for you or, or the team as a whole in the lead up where you realized that that team might be destined for something special? Yeah, well, I remember um... – I was sitting watching like Monday night football. I think the week before we went to Ireland and Mike Floyd, Robert Blanton and Harrison Smith gave me a call and they looked at our schedule and they said, you know, Tom, what do you, what do you think you guys are going to, um, you know, what's your record going to be this year? I, I looked at the schedule. I said, you know, honestly, 10 and two, you know, I thought that was pretty, you know, pretty modest. And they all laughed. They thought we were going to go six and six. So, um, I think I think when we played Oklahoma and um, you know we kind of beat them in the fashion that we did. That's when I was. I think was that to go six and zero maybe. Um, that's when. That's when we all kind of realized, like, hey, well, you know, this is this is pretty special, and um, you know, we're we're actually pretty damn good. Earlier in that year, and considering it is Purdue week, so it does seem right to discuss one of your more memorable moments from that season. Um, Tommy Reese comes in the game, doesn't start, Everett starts the season, and you get a pass from Reese on third down for 21 yards that sets up the game-winning field goal. Once again, it looks like Notre Dame is in a position where they might be playing two quarterbacks against the Boilermakers. So what was that, that like playing with Tommy and Everett? Um, and what do you remember about that play specifically? Well, to address the two-quarterback um, thing, I think it's – it's you know harder for a quarterback to to get their rhythm as far as a receiver, you know obviously Everett might throw it a little different than Tommy or place it differently, but our job is is the same no matter who's on the field, you know. So um, I can't speak on whether I agree with a two quarterback system or not because it clearly worked, you know, or it clearly works in certain situations. But um, you know, as far as that that last two minute drive, I was very disappointed with the Notre Dame fans that, that year uh, or that game because they booed Tommy and, um, you know, Tommy ended up coming in and, and we, we won, but, um, 
you know, that's kind of when, you know, I understand, you know, people pay a lot of money to be in the stands and whatnot, but I was, I'm not gonna lie. I was a little disappointed when, when I heard the booing, but you know, Tommy did what Tommy does and, and that's perform under pressure and, and just be a stud and, um, that route is something Tommy and I work on or used to work on all the time. It's called a pop route. Um, I was only supposed to go five yards, but because, because it was third and 10, I extended it. And luckily, luckily Tommy was like, all right, well, hopefully Rob turns, <laughs> but, uh, no, it all worked out. One of the, uh, huge storylines that 2012 year was obviously Manti's unbelievable season had one of the best seasons of any defensive player in Notre Dame history, like finished second in the Heisman and pretty much won every other award a linebacker could win to make him the most decorated player in Notre Dame history. As that season was going on, how great was that for you to be able to share that experience with somebody who you'd been friends with pretty much your whole life? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, um, <laughs> him and I would joke sometimes because, there are a few games I didn't have any catches and he had an interception. <laughs> and I was like, how the hell did you get more catches than me in this game? Um, but no, I, you know, it was, it goes back to all the hard work and, and everything that you know, I watched him train and I trained with him from the, since we were you know seven years old. So um, I honestly kind of expected it. So it wasn't a shock to me, but it was, it was, it was nice for me to, you know, see him. And truthfully, he should have won the Heisman, you know, that we don't have to get into the, the off the field stuff. But if you look from just a, a football perspective, that was one of the greatest seasons from a linebacker that we'll probably ever see. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to argue with that and probably why he won every single award. And um, unfortunately we know how that season ended. Actually, Luke and I were both at that national championship game and, I don't think any of us care to relive that. Um, however, that was the last game of your career. And given where the program was when you started, that's pretty incredible uh, to make it that far in four years. So once the game was over and you had time to reflect on it all, how did you walk away uh, from that 2012 season and your Notre Dame football career? I, I'm obviously I'm very proud of what I did. Um, it's one of those things, right, where you have expectations. And I am very proud that I played. And I'm very proud of our team that we made it to the national title, but we didn't win it. So there's that, like, I wouldn't say emptiness, but, you know, it's like sometimes I still have dreams that, like, the game is still going and we came back and won. (laughs) So it's not one of those, you know, fishing for compliments. My my, my career, I'm very proud of what I did, but, you know, I wish I I did more, you know. That's just the type of person I am. And, um, And our team that year, we were – all disappointed and still disappointed to this day about the showing that we had against Alabama because they, for lack of a better term, whooped their ass that day. So, um, but you know, when we look back on it, the moments of that year were unbelievable. The, the parties and, and the, um, you know, just the, the fun that we had as, as a team um, is definitely something that we all still talk about more so than any score or, or anything. Yeah, no, it's it's funny you bring that up. And obviously you talk about just, you know, what you remember from that. But I think even more importantly, you and Manti really did kind of pave the way for future Hawaiian players to have success in Notre Dame. I think there's four guys from Hawaii on this year's roster. And Alohi Gilman was another standout player for the team as well the last couple of years. So now there's that legitimate pipeline from Hawaii to Notre Dame, which I don't think 
would have really ever been possible if not for you and Manti. So how proud are you of that, of the impact that Hawaiian players have had on, on the Notre Dame football program? Yeah, super proud. And, you know, a lot of people forget Kona, um, you know, who passed away not too long ago, but, um, you know, Manti Kona and I were, were, you know, the three stooges. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we were always together. And um, I think, the fact that kids saw three local boys on a national stage, you know, for the most part, most kids didn't really go past, you know, the Mississippi river. <laughs> Everybody is West coast. And um, so the fact that we were able to find success on a national stage, um, get our degrees and, um, you know, just do everything that we could to make our families proud. I think, you know, there, there's a sense of pride seeing four local boys on there, but you got to give Kelly and you got to give um, Polian and even Coach Weiss credit for their recruiting efforts uh, in the islands. And, and hopefully, I, I really hope it continues because you look at a guy like, you know, Myron, he's having a huge impact on um, on the team. And Kahanu will, Maris, everybody loves. Jordan is going to be an animal. So um, sorry if I'm missing any, any other kid, but, uh, you know, Paul Moala, who just, for his Achilles, his family took care of us when we when we were in South Bend. So that Polynesian Hawaiian connection is very special, and, and uh, I hope it continues at Notre Dame. Now I know it's been some time since you graduated, but given how close Hawaiian people are, and how involved are you with any of the current Hawaiian players in the Notre Dame roster, maybe the ones in the recent past, like you mentioned, like with Gilman? So I mean, I, I grew up with Alohi and his family. I, I've known Alohi since he was young. Um, I, Funny, I actually told Coach Polian when he was the head coach at Nevada that he needed to offer Gilman. And, uh, you know, for, for whatever whatever happened at Nevada, you know, obviously, Alohi goes to Navy. And, um, you know, I was stoked to hear that he was going to transfer to Notre Dame. But I coached Maris. Um, I'm friends with Kahanu's dad. Um, I've met Myron, you know, when I when I go to the games. I didn't really have a connection with him before. But, you know, we'll, we'll – we'll message each other back and forth here and there. I've met Jordan once or twice. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm definitely the older head, but you know, when, when Maris comes down or whatever, I might take him out for lunch or, or whatnot, but um, no, it's just, it's, it's exactly what older guys did for me, whether they're from Hawaii or not. Um, you just kind of look out for, for your guys. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do for the, for the Notre Dame boys. Yeah, no, absolutely. But before we get into some rapid fire to close this out, you mentioned the guys there, Jordan, Kahanu, and, and Maris, but what do you expect Notre Dame fans to to see from those guys once they really get their chance to shine? Obviously, Marist was hurt, and it seemed like he was primed for a, a breakout year this year, but, but what do you expect to see from those guys once they get their chance here? I, I mean, the best way I can describe all those kids, just they're all relentless. Um, they They fly around. They don't have any – um, what's the word? Not fear, but like they could care less if they get hurt. You know, they're they're just flying in there, and I, I think you guys will see. What, especially, you know, hopefully Jordan can get out there this week. Um, but when Jordan was in high school, I was the offensive coordinator at, at Punahou, and immediately I knew that kid was going to be something special. And you know, Kahano, I got to see him in practice every day, so. Like I said, you're just gonna see, you're just gonna see these kids who love the game, have a passion for it, and 
um, just want to win. And, and I think Notre Dame is very lucky to have all these Hawaii boys on there. All right, we'll wrap it up here with some rapid-fire questions. All right, first one, favorite place to eat in South Bend? Uh, it used to be the was it the Great American Pancake House off Grape Road. It's gone now. We just actually, Luke and I just ate at the Pancake House. Is that a different one? Yeah, we went to the other oh, one. Okay. There's another one. They used to have this um, Irish skillet that we used to get every Sunday after games. I'll, 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 give, I'll give Nick's patio a shout out. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, who's the best player you've ever played with or against? I would, I would say the best pound-for-pound pound player I've ever seen is Steel Riddick. He just the the guy the guy could could run and cut, and it looks like he's going to tear his ACL every time, and he never did. That's true. All right, these last two, we'll give you some time to think if you need it. But the first one, what's the weirdest interaction you ever had with a fan? Um, I got flashed at the USC game. <laughs> Notre Dame <laughs> fan or USC by, fan? By a USC fan. That that was funny. Coach Alfred looked at me and was like. Wow. I was like, I don't know. I've never met her before. I'd like to know her. But yeah, that, that was it. That was, it was mid-game at USC. Oh, in the stands? In the stands. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm not sure what they were trying to accomplish there, but I think it, I think it only helped. Yeah. Wow. That's great. And then the, the question we ask every Notre Dame alum who comes on this podcast, what's the weirdest thing you experienced during a night out in South Bend? We used to frame it as at club fever. So if it's there, great. But if not anywhere, in, anywhere else in South Bend works for this one. Oh, I love, I love me some Fieve. Um, RIP Fieve. But weirdest thing in South Bend, it might've been the last time I was there. i I rode a line bike and it locked up on me and I fell. I mean, that wasn't the weirdest thing, but I was out of college. <laughs> I rode one of those line bikes back and I, I don't know if my card stopped, but it locked and I went almost head over heels. Yeah, they don't have those anymore, probably for good reason then. <laughs> I might, yeah, I probably in one of the reasons. <laughs> All right, Robbie, we know you got things to do. So thanks so much for the time again. We really appreciate it and you're welcome back anytime. Awesome, guys. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Sun's Saturday Irish. We'll be back on Friday morning to get you ready for the Notre Dame-Purdue game on Saturday. And in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sons of Sat Irish. Have a great week, everybody.